Well, good morning, everyone, here and online. Good to be with you on this uh, long weekend, a little bit different long weekend. Still seems like every weekend's the same, and actually every week is like every weekend. So, uh, again, COVID life is what it's like. Uh, one of the things I've been trying to do is we've been going through this series in Philippians. I've been trying to read ahead uh, in some of the resources that I've been using, uh, even if Brian or Paul has been, and Josh has, uh, has been speaking. And I was playing a little catch-up this past week, and I was reading the passage, or on the passage that Brian spoke on last week, and, and uh, was quite taken with some of the, th- the thoughts that uh, were in the uh, study books that I was using, and, and was really struck by the, the posture that Paul talks about, we as followers of Jesus uh, needing to have, just in, just in our daily life, that we are to be people who aren't anxious, uh, that we are to be people of prayer, and that we're to be people of thanksgiving, that as we bring our prayers, they're seasoned with thanksgiving. And as I was contemplating that this week, and as I was thinking about the message for, for this Sunday, I was reminded of a situation that took place many, many years ago. It was at an Easter conference in Scarborough. So like Peterborough used to do, the Bible chapels in Scarborough had the East Easter conference, and the ones that were on the west side of Toronto and Mississauga had the West Easter conference. And it was quite a gathering. And I remember this one service, and I'm not sure if it was the morning or in the afternoon, and I'm not even really sure how old I was, I know that I was old enough that I wasn't able to go to the kids' program, but I was young enough to wonder if my parents really didn't love me and they made me go to the Easter conference and have to sit through two speakers, lunch, two speakers, supper, speaker, and that was Friday, and then we did the same thing on Saturday, and then we did the same thing on Sunday. So it was somewhere where I was old enough, not to really, young enough to not truly appreciate uh, the Easter conference experience to its fullest. But anyways, I remember on this one particular service, we'd gotten to the end of the second message, and I know a meal was coming. And the host, or the chairman, looked out on a crowd of probably four, 400, 500 people, and asked so-and-so if they would come and ask God's blessing on what we had just heard, and to give thanks for what was to come. And it was crickets. And everyone turned around to the person who had been called, and he was just sitting like this, going. And I can remember at that young age, not really understanding what the reasoning could have been, thinking, he's got nothing to be thankful for. He's been asked to give thanks and he's drawing a blank. And with 400 people staring at you, that was a big blank. I thought, how crazy to be a Christian and not to have something to give thanks for. And then I realized, I draw blanks all the time when it comes to Thanksgiving, and maybe you can relate. Like, have you ever been, for me, sitting at the bedside of one of my children at bedtime, and I know it just kind of comes routine, becomes routine. You know, dear Lord, we just want to thank you, and it's like blank. 
Like, I can't think of it. Or at mealtime, you know, to give thanks and you draw a blank. Or, or the worst is in a small group setting where the host has decided what we're going to do is we're going to go around the circle and we're going to just give prayers of thanks and just, just say what you're thankful for. And the whole time as it's coming up to my turn, I go, what am I thankful for? I can't think of anything profound that I'm, that I'm thankful for. And as I said, it seems ridiculous to think as a follower of Jesus, I can't think of something to be thankful for, that I'm drawing a blank. But then I think of what we've just gone through in the last 16 months. I mean, this COVID season has left so many people feeling discontent. It's robbed so many people of peace and happiness and satisfaction and joy that it almost is imaginable that we can draw a blank when it comes to being thankful. You know, the world that we live in has a lot to say about what leads to being thankful. I'll call it the humanistic formula. And the humanistic formula would tell us that joy, or sorry, thankfulness is a byproduct of feeling joy and peace and happiness, which is the direct result of being content with the circumstances of life. So in other words, when things are going good in our home, in our marriage, with our children, at school, in our workplace, uh, with our health, uh, in our extended family, when things are going good, we feel content. And when we feel content, we have joy and we have peace and we have happiness. And when you've got those things, there's so much to be thankful for. That's what the world would tell us. But the flip side's true as well, right? Like when things aren't going well, when the circumstances of life are difficult and trying, we're not feeling so content, are we? We're actually feeling discontent. And the world would tell us that when we're feeling discontent, that discontent robs us of that joy and that peace and that satisfaction. And as a result, it's hard to feel thankful. And we draw blanks. You know, the Bible has things to say about contentment. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. In uh, Hebrews, the writer says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so as you read Scripture, contentment is not only a virtue, it's, it's really a command. As followers of Jesus, we are to be content because we have a loving and gracious Father who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. And yet the reality is we live in desperately discontent times. Sociologists would tell you that North Americans are probably more discontent than people who live in the most depraved nations. And if contentment is not only a virtue, but it's a command, I would say that many Christians don't experience it. And, and very few experience it to the degree that God would want us to experience contentment. Because if we're honest, many of us struggle with discontentment. I know I do. There's so many situations where I'm reminded of my struggle 
with discontentment. I just preached up at a church on the beach a couple of weeks ago. I do it yearly. And I don't think there's been a time that I've not preached, stared out on the beach, enjoyed the day up at a, a relative's cottage, and started to plan and figure out how I possibly could get a cottage too. And, and how much I'm missing by not having a cottage. And how much I wish I had all the toys that everyone else is playing with on the water. I'm reminded every time I drive my 2003 Ford Focus station wagon that's approaching 200,000 kilometers and someone younger drives by me in a real sporty car, how discontent I can be with my choice of wheels. When I hear what other people do in their vacations, I struggle with discontentment. When I go to the gym and I see other people who are in much better shape than me and look so much better, I struggle with discontentment. And I'm sure we can all think of those things that breed discontent in our life. We're discontent with who we are, with what we are, with what we have, with how we look, with our spouse, with our marriage, with our family, with our children, with our job, with our school, with our place in life. Discontentment just seems to be everywhere. And it's, and it's a real struggle. What I want to do is before we go any further, I want to do an honest appraisal. I want you to think about where you are on the scale of contentment. You don't have to share the answer with anyone. And my prayer is that as we work through our message this morning, God will, will help you to see and to understand and to learn how you can move along the scale to a place of greater contentment. So I just want to think about your life, think about where you're at. Would you say that you're extremely content? Would you say that you're mostly content? How about somewhat content? Or if you're honest, are you going to say that you're mostly discontent? Are you extremely discontent? You see, whether we know it or not, or whether we intentionally or, or just happens, uh, we find ourselves caught up in that, that humanistic formula. We, we've bought into this, this idea that circumstances determines how content we are in life. And how content we are in life will determine the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that we will experience in life. We're kind of like a boat caught up on a real wavy ocean. And we're tossed 
from one wave of contentment to another wave of discontentment and back and forth, back. And that's how we live our life, right? We're victims of circumstance. And yet, Paul in our passage this morning wants us to know that we can experience true contentment even in the wildest storms of life. And we've, we've, we've said it many times as we've been going through this study of Paul's letter to the Philippians that, that Paul's in prison, chained to a Roman guard. He's uh, not free to move around and to minister like he would have loved to have been. Uh, he, he's in great need. Uh, the prison system of first century Rome are way different than the prison system of today. Uh, many of his own needs he would have had to provide for. Uh, he relied on the help of others. And so Paul would have been barely scraping by. He's facing a trial. There, there a chance, a, probably a slim chance, but there's a chance that Paul could be put to death. And yet Paul, as he comes to the concluding uh, verses, uh, the, the final chapter of his letter to the Philippians, says something that is so radical, so countercultural when you consider the context from which he's writing. Paul says to his beloved friends in Philippi, I know what it's like to have nothing. I know what it's like to have the worst thrown at me by life. I, I also know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to find myself in good circumstances. But I've learned the secret of being content regardless of the circumstance in any and every situation. Wouldn't it be great to know what that secret is? That we could experience that same true contentment that Paul says that he experiences? Well, in the, the few verses that we're going to look at this morning, we can glean from them uh, three different strands of this secret that Paul has learned. If you've got your Bible, uh, turn to Philippians 4. And let's just uh, read these uh, few verses together, and, and we'll touch on them as we, we go through um, Paul's secret to true, com true contentment. So Philippians 4, uh, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you re renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Before we un, uh, unveil the secret, just a couple of things that I think it's important for us to, to understand and to see. First of all, just the definition of contentment. Uh, Paul is not introducing a new word into the vocabulary uh, for his uh, first readers. In fact, he uses a word that probably more truthfully catches the Philippian hearers by surprise. 
that Paul would use this word in a Christian context. You see, the word contentment finds its roots, uh, its, its, its meaning in the, in the root of a Greek word uh, that means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied, to have enough. So someone who is rich and powerful and didn't have to rely on anybody for the, for the necessities and, and, and even the luxuries of life was considered to be content. The philosophers of Paul's day used that word also, and, and it was a word that described a person who had risen to a level of indifference concerning the things of life. They were almost void of emotion and feeling. They could, they could truthfully say when it came to the things and the circumstances of life, I don't care. And the philosophers of Paul's day said, that person is content. So you can see why the Philippians were going, what? <laughs> You've learned the secret of being content. What, what kind of mystery stuff is Paul going to be telling us here? But what Paul's doing is he's taking a word and he's raising it to a greater level. And, and what he wants to talk about is spiritual contentment. And so what Paul is saying here is that regardless of circumstance, regardless of what situation he finds himself, he's learned the secret of being satisfied and sufficient in himself, which sounds really wrong. So hear the end of the sentence. He finds himself satisfied and sufficient in himself, but not in himself as Paul alone, but in himself as perfectly and fully indwelt by Christ. That's what spiritual contentment is to Paul, to be Christ-sufficient. The other thing I want you to uh, note is Paul says, I have learned contentment. Contentment is a learned state. It isn't something that just happens naturally. And I, I stand before you as a living testimony, as, a, as a, an example that contentment just doesn't come naturally. And it's born witness in, in the things that I think and the things that I say and, and the things that I do. We, we want what others have. We want more than we have. We compare ourselves to others. We're envious of what others have. We get thrown back a level or two when the circumstances of life are difficult and are a trial. That's my experience. And you know what? Nobody taught me that. I didn't have to go through a training session to be discontent. The things and the reactions that I am prone to have just come naturally to me. And Paul says, contentment is a learned state. Paul, as he has grown in his faith and his relationship and his, with, with the experience he's had with God, and as he's experienced the provision of God, can say, I've learned the secret of being content. 
And what's that secret? Well, let's, as any good sermon would have three points, let's look at it in three uh, different answers. And the first answer is this, that contentment is rooted in putting our total trust in God's sovereign providence. Contentment is rooted in putting our total trust in God's sovereign providence. As many of you know, I work in the printing industry, and one of the negatives of the printing industry is that it's never consistently busy. It gets busy, and then it gets slow, and then it gets busy, and then it gets slow. And I, for 30 years or more now, have lived through this roller coaster experience of having customers who will send me work consistently for a month or two months at a time, then all of a sudden, nothing. I don't hear from them. There's no orders. I'm not even doing estimates for them. And I get nervous. You would think after 30 years of the roller coaster ride, I'd have figured things out. But I still get nervous and I get, I get anxious. And so when I actually could drop in on people, that's when you drop in. Hey, how's it going? Just, hey, remember me? You used to send me work. Or I'd, I'd send an email that was, you know, manipulatively written. Hey, you forgot about me. I hope I didn't do anything wrong in the last order I did for you. You know, just trying to get them to respond so I can find out what's going on. Or same thing, I might make a phone call and just check up on them and make sure they remember who I am. Paul is so different. In verse 10, we find Paul thanking um, the Philippians for their gift. And uh, it's been about 10 years since he's received a gift from the Philippians. And Paul says, that's okay. It's okay that you haven't sent me a gift because I knew you didn't have the opportunity to do so. But I rejoice that your concern for me has blossomed again and you sent me a gift and it's come at such a critical time because I really needed it. You see the difference? There's no panic in Paul's words. There's no manipulation. There's no pressure. And why is it? Because Paul put his patient confidence in the sovereign providence of God. And those words sovereign and providence, you hear them, you know, they're they're church words, and, and maybe we don't even know what those words actually stand for. So let me make sure I define them for you. Sovereign simply means that Paul knew that his life was in the hands of the one who controls the seasons and the times and the opportunities of life. God is sovereign. God is in control. And Paul realized his life was in the hands totally of the one who is in control. Providence simply means that God is the orchestrator of the circumstances of our life. God's in control. God provides, and He is orchestrating the circumstances of each one of our lives so that He can fulfill His purposes in our life. And that was Paul's confidence in life. Paul's contentment was rooted in the fact that he put his trust in God who is in control and who is orchestrating putting together a masterpiece. I want to share an illustration, and and I know from, I got a, Lloyd, you may have one of these, but I have a sermon illustration file, and I write down when I've used these illustrations. I've used this illustration at Auburn, and I believe it was six years ago. 
So given the fact that some of you probably don't remember what I spoke on two weeks ago, I'm hoping that you're going to totally have forgotten this illustration. But if you are reminded of it, I just think it's a really good illustration uh, to uh, strengthen this point here. Uh, But keeping with the printing industry theme, I was at a print show in Chicago uh, probably about a decade ago, and, and all of these different booths selling machines and all the different things that go with the printing and the print finishing industry. Uh, and what some of the booths that have lots of money would do is they would have uh, an attraction to draw you to their booth. And uh, in this one booth, they had an artist. And uh, some of you might go, I think I remember this story. Um, and this artist had something very unique at least it was unique to me at the time, is he had a blank canvas on a stand, but the stand would spin this way and would also spin this way. And so in effect, what he could do is he could print upside down, or sorry, he could paint upside down, and then he could turn it around and flip the canvas, and all of a sudden, it was right side up. And uh, so he would be, as he was painting, flipping this and turning this, this uh, canvas around. So he starts out with this blank canvas, and all of a sudden, he just starts smearing paint, on this canvas. Uh, and then he grabbed his brush and he's you know, jabbing it at the canvas and then he would flip it upside down and turn it around. And he, he did this for about 10 or 15 minutes. And, and, and to me as an observer, I have no clue what he's doing. Like, I don't see what he thinks he sees. And in, in my estimation, uh, he probably's made a mistake. And I sure hope the person who owns the booth didn't pay him a whole lot of money because he's really not good at what he's doing. I thought, you know, our life is kind of like that blank canvas, right? And God's the artist with the paint and the brush and the whatever the thing is that flops the paint in his hand. And how do you feel when you look at your life and it's a perfectly clean white canvas and all of a sudden God throws this smear of paint right on your canvas? You're kind of annoyed. Like, what's going on? disturbed by this intrusion in our life, and ow, when the the brush comes down hard and puts this line of paint on us, and then we're totally distraught as as the canvas of our life gets spinning round and round and, and upside down, we start to wonder, is the artist making a mistake? Is the artist nothing more than a tyrant? Does he really know what he's doing? That's how I felt at the Print Expo in Chicago. And I watched, and I I stayed right to the very end. But at the very end, the artist stopped the canvas from turning and spinning. And he turned it to the audience, and he flipped it right side up and revealed a masterpiece. Now, that's all relative. I think it was a picture of Elvis Presley, if I'm not mistaken. But it was a masterpiece. It was like, oh my word. He knew what he was doing all the time. I couldn't see it, but he knew it. And every gob of paint, every smear, every smack of the paintbrush, when he flipped it upside down and was turning the, the, the canvas around, he knew what he was doing. And it all came together to be a masterpiece. And if our life is that canvas, and God is the artist, and he's creating a masterpiece, and we know that, like we sing about that. We read about it in Scripture. If that is the reality, can I ask, where is your confidence and where is your time and energy placed? Because I think for many of us, 
our confidence and our time and energy is placed on the canvas. And we try to do everything that we can to control what's taking place to the canvas. We want so badly to have total control of the circumstances of our life. And we find it terribly discouraging when we realize over and over again that we never can have total control. And we're distraught when we see things happening on our canvas and we can't see the big picture. And if that's where our confidence is in our ability to control the canvas, to control the circumstances of our life, we'll never experience true contentment. If that's where Paul's confidence was to control the circumstances of his life, he never would have written verse 10 the way that he did, showing this patient confidence that God's in control, that that God is working out the circumstances, even the bad ones in his life, to accomplish his good purposes. And so is our devotion and our time and energy spent, focused on the canvas, or is it focused on the artist? the one who holds the brush, who's creating a masterpiece. And just just think about that. How freeing and liberating is it to know that your life and my life is God's masterpiece? We are his handiwork. I think about that and I go, I still don't get it. But there is coming a day and it may not be until eternity when, when we're going to go, wow, God was putting all those things together, allowing things to happen. And he accomplished all of these things through it, realizing God doesn't make mistakes. Nothing catches him by surprise. He only has our good in mind. He's got our back. And so Paul could experience true contentment because he put his total trust in the sovereign providence of God, knowing that whether circumstances were good or bad, whether they were easy or difficult, whether they were painful or comfortable, he was putting his trust in the one who was creating a masterpiece the masterpiece of his own life. So that's the, the first strand of, two com, uh, of true contentment. The second strand is this, is the contentment, and this is really in keeping with what Brian has said last week and a few times uh, uh, in, in a few other messages. Uh, contentment is not dependent on circumstances. In fact, it's indifferent to circumstances. You know, if I was trying to sell someone on Christianity, Paul probably would not be the poster I put on the wall uh, or the uh, uh, showroom model that I would demonstrate. Because from humanly speaking terms, Paul had a lot of miserable life experiences. I mean, he's writing from prison. He's chained to a guard. He's barely scraping by. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been thrown in jail. And on and on and on again. Just read a history of Paul's life. And, and again, from the world's standpoint, wow, who would really want that? And yet in our passage, look what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it's to be in need. And in need there um, means to be humbled, to be made low. It's a, it was a, a phrase that, that was used of a river during times of drought. And Paul says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be at the bottom. I know what it's like when life throws giant curveballs my way. And I know what it is to have plenty. And the, the word plenty here was used to describe a river during the rainy season when the water was overflowing the banks. So Paul gets it. He knows all the circumstances of life. I've learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What a radical statement. It's radical because many of us are still caught up in that humanistic formula that tells us that if we want to be content, if we want to experience peace, joy, satisfaction, if we want to feel thankful, we have to be able to control the circumstances of our life. Our circumstances have to be good. And so we try to control the circumstances in our life, but we all know you can't. Like you can to a, bit, uh, to a certain degree, but you can't totally control the circumstances of your life. And even when you think you have it under control, something happens. And all of a sudden, life is bad all over again. And then you're not content because you've bought into this humanistic formula. And so we know it's futile to try to control our circumstances, but we still try to do it anyways. And why? is because we live in a world that shows us the very same thing. We live in a world that believes if we can just control circumstances, if we can just get on top of things, then the people of our world, of our nation, of our country, will be content. And if they're content, they'll be happy. They'll be satisfied. They'll be thankful. And Paul wants to expose that that is a lie. That contentment doesn't come from being able to control our circumstances because we can't control our circumstances because God is the one who's in control. And Paul wants us to understand that contentment, that joy and peace aren't fruits of good circumstances. Rather, they're fruits of the Spirit. That joy and peace are not because a result of what's going on outside of us. They're a byproduct of what's going on inside of us. Contentment is not directly influenced by circumstances. In fact, it's indifferent to circumstances. Our contentment is a result of the indwelt dwelling of Christ in our life. And Paul was determined in his life to not let what took place in his life on the outside overwhelm what had already taken place on the inside. And that's Paul, right? Like he's kind of a super Christian, right? And so maybe we expect that of Paul, but but is that something that we can expect in our own life? Can we see that happening in just an average, everyday Christian. 
Can we expect it to happen in an average everyday Christian who has a horrible circumstance taking place in their life that they can experience true contentment independent of the circumstance they find themselves in? And and whenever I have this thought, I, I pull, I carry this in my Bible. I probably shared this numerous times from this letter. This is a letter from a very good friend of mine had brain cancer two months before he passed away. Just a young guy, young kids. We would say the circumstances of his life sucked. And here's the letter that he sent out to his closest friends. Just the last paragraph. He says, as for the good news, I'm off of chemo for good. That makes me so happy. Thank God for that. As well, let me remind you, Christ is coming soon. He's coming to get us and we'll all go home and we will celebrate together, worshiping, worshiping him in his glory. No more disease, no more tears, simply bliss. Continue to pray with us for healing. He is a God that always heals, not always in the here and now, but eventually. And he's also the God who will not abandon us to the grave. He's ever present all the time. These are not the words of a strong Christian man, but rather words of a child of the king who is a bit afraid of the next few months, but confident only and the promises of God. True contentment is independent of circumstances. In fact, it's indifferent to circumstances. And then finally, Paul tells us in verse 13, true contentment is realized when we find the source of our strength in Jesus Christ. In verse 13, Paul says, I can do all this. Your Bible may say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And verse 13 is probably one of the most misquoted, misunderstood, taken out of context verses in Scripture. Uh, Used as a magical formula to tell us that we can do anything that we want. The context here is Paul's ability to be content in any and every situation. Paul says, I can do all this, or I can do all things. Well, what what are all things? What Paul is saying is, no matter what life throws at me, I can be content because of the spiritual strength that I find inside of me. The true contentment comes when I get to the bottom of my own resources, and there I find the strength of Jesus. Paul wants us to know is that he can live way beyond the capacity of his own strength. Why? Because Jesus Christ has indwelt him through his spirit. Weightlifters get this. Weightlifters, how do they increase their strength and and, and get to, to lift weights heavier than they could before? They get a spotter. And so they'll sit down or lay down to do a bench press and they'll put 10 more pounds on than they know that they can lift and they'll get that weight down and they'll push with all the strength and almost get it up and it's stuck. They're at the the end of their resources, the end of their capacity. And it's amazing. All a spotter has to do is literally put two fingers and just take about five pounds, 10 pounds, all that's necessary to lift that up. And, and, And Paul realized that he could be content because he knew that Jesus was the source of his strength. Jesus was his, his spotter. Jesus was the, the spiritual undergirding of all that he did. 
Linda re- read uh, from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, and some of you may have wondered, whoa, what in the world does this have to do with the passage? And, and I was really just wanting to focus on those last couple of, of verses uh, that she, um, she read for us. And, and it's so ironic, because what Paul says in these verses is, is that contentment can even be experienced in distress. Paul says, my, or sorry, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Like what? In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, in bad circumstances. I just threw that one in. For when I am weak, then I am strong. True contentment is realized when we find the source of our strength is Jesus Christ himself. My time's gone. Let me just close with a, with a, a quote yeah, and then a, a redefinition of, of contentment. Corey Ten Boom said this, after suffering the loss of her family, who was in prison uh, in the Nazi Nazi concentration camp. She said this, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you will be at rest. Contentment is a state of satisfaction that's anchored to our confidence in God that results in a joyful celebration of life. I asked you at the beginning or somewhere near the beginning where you are on the scale of contentment. And my prayer for you is is that you'll go to God with what your answer was. Thankful if you're way over on the contented side, but if you're on the other side, and I think some of us, many of us probably aren't right over on the extremely content. Acknowledge to God that we've been caught up in this formula that tells us circumstances of life is what determines contentment, which determines joy and peace and satisfaction, which, which will end, uh, result in us being thankful. Confess that. And ask that God would help you to understand these three things. Putting your total trust in, in a God who's in control and who's working on a masterpiece in your life. Pray that God would help you to understand that contentment is not dependent upon circumstances. And pray that you will find the source of strength which will bring you contentment in Jesus Christ. For his glory, amen.